you're not seriously going to let Scarface stay here, are you? What if the mob finds him here? If you're that concerned, why don't you stay up? Immediately, I realized the folly of that statement. Go to the garage. And wake up with Mr. Ed's head in my bed? I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to the Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And Amy, what trope are we talking about? This week, we are talking about run-ins with the mob. Run-ins with the mob, the mafia. I feel like we've had a run of fairly down-to-earth topics. We've been covering rites of passage, like getting your driver's license or different relationship-type stories. Now I feel like we're veering back in the direction of the time-traveling toasters and the reversible traumatic brain injuries. Uh, I don't know that this is totally grounded in reality, but let me ask you, what is your experience? Did you have a moment in your life where you felt like you were getting adjacent to the criminal underworld, as it were? (laughs) I don't think so. I feel like in real life, this is a really problematic thing and they try to talk about it a little bit in one of the shows but yeah just because someone's a little familial and also italian doesn't necessarily mean we're dealing with the mob yeah we'll get into like you said with some of these shows how this deals with stereotypes about the italian american community i will say that of course i don't really have any stories to tell about uh mafia exploits either i love that you were like of course i don't but you asked me like hey i mean don't you have this in your background But I have always noticed how this was a ubiquitous pop culture trope in the 80s and 90s that, you know, you would go to the movies to see three men and a baby, twins, the dream team, the fun, lighthearted comedy about the uh, group therapy patients that get lost on the so, way. So like everything from the 80s was yeah. a run in with them all mom. of these <laughs> down the, comedy. Yeah, all of these down the middle family comedies that were just simple sitcom movies would always have a mafia subplot or some sort right. of hitman or something that they would have to deal with. And you watch these movies now and it's hysterical. There is no reason for three men and a baby to include a subplot about heroin runners that they get mixed up in and end up having this showdown with on these like beams in some construction site. Well, what else would the story be? That's what you see in the years to come in the Judd Apatow years and stuff where you take those story elements out of it and you can go back to just having like a fairly low stakes comedy about human My family's crazy. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like at the time that we were growing up, this was a go-to thing. Oh, absolutely. There was always, oh my gosh, he might be a gangster. Yeah. And I'm going to argue that the reason for that is because gangsters and mobsters and this whole thing goes back to the origins of cinema, right? Like in the early 20th century, when movies were first like happening, 
you were like in the days of Al Capone and stuff for real, you know? And so when you look back on it, yeah, those movies like Scarface, uh, Little Caesars, Public Enemies, you know, those movies from the 30s were like these, these you know, quintessential, uh, like these sort of cinematic characters. Like they're almost like monsters, but they're sort of like from real life, but greatly exaggerated. There was a Scarface movie from the 30s, not yeah. just the recent one? Yes, the Al, the Al Pacino. One is a remake. Scarface was one of those original run. And then you you go through the years and, you know, you have The Godfather in the 70s, you have The Untouchables in the 80s, Goodfellas in the 90s, and then The Sopranos, of course, like... There's something about organized crime and, like I said before, this criminal underworld that's, like, could be, you know, almost amongst us but is just out of sight that is, like, fascinating. And I feel like that we as a culture, we don't want to ever let go of that. And, you know, we keep bringing that into these dopey movies and TV shows and stuff because it's just so hard for them to resist. Like, oh, but what if a hitman was trying to get them? Gosh, you know, it's really interesting, though, because I... There's something there that has to do with the fascination of culture writ large with these kind of like Italian type gangsters, like the fam, like, you know, my family back in Sicily and all of that. And that being like treated with this prestige and this mystique, whereas the hustlers and like, you know, the gangsters of like now, right? The people in the 90s and the 80s um, who like Jay-Z and his story, right? Where he was just trying to like get out of the hood and was hustling all the time and like selling dope and doing what he could. Same thing with like the the like death row, the yeah. death row records well, guys, we'll like that. all of that. It's so interesting that that hasn't become this sort of mystique in a way that that where that it's like a family friendly version of gangsters we can talk about on TV and put into everything. I that's interesting because is it does it just have to do with the color of people's skin? Like the Italian gangsters are safe and and we can look at them as like oh isn't it magical and mystical? But we can't do that with black people. Yeah, I mean you'll see that a little bit with the everybody hates Chris thing. How you sort of have these different tiers of like there's right. a little bit of a you know mafia thing going on in the black neighborhood, and then the Italians are going to come in and they're sort of on another level. Yeah, but yeah, I think a lot of it does have to do with the cultural ubiquity. Of of The Godfather coming out in the mid-70s. Well, and we're really, going to see that in these. Like, there's a yeah. joke in every one about a head, some kind of head in the bed. Definitely. But that movie, I think, just really crystallized what the the sort of everyday schmo's conception is of the mafia. And it is uniquely Italian. They go to Sicily in the middle of the movie and have that whole subplot. And so it is, I think, that really set the tone for, like, the mafia is this Italian phenomenon. It's right. not just criminals of all stripes, right. you know, and that persists, yeah, to this day. But it all came out of, you know, the similar origin stories of these gangs, whether Italian or, you know, African-American now or, you know, in the 80s and whatnot, that all comes out of this need to, like, protect your community because you're on the outskirts of society. Yes. And it's so interesting to see the way that the, the way that it's played in all of these shows is very comical like yes. it's not scary at all it's just like oh we're so nervous no but we don't want but we don't know what's 
out, you know, behind this person. Yeah. And again, I think it's because so much of this comes from movies and TV and not from real life. And The Sopranos, in my view, is the first of these to really give any down-to-earth insight, even though the movie Goodfellas is a real story based on a real guy and his life and everything, you watch that now and it does have this cartoonish quality to it. It does feel like a Hollywood version of that. And then, of course, you know, that's that's the best version. And then you have all the knockoffs and imitators. So I absolutely think that when we're talking about the ALF episode that deals with the mafia, <laughs> yes, this is based on fifth or sixth generation of stereotypes and misconceptions that come from the movies and not from any, you know, real world criminal activity. Right. Well, and also the people who are worried about this are so far removed from any type of criminal activity that they're just like all they know of organized crime is what they've seen in the movies. So they're like, ah, I'm going to wind up with a head in my bed. Yes. Yes. All right. So what's our lineup? What are our shows? All right. Our shows are Bosom Buddies Season 2, Episode 12, The Grandfather, ALF Season 3, Episode 13, Hideaway, Head of the Class Season 4, Episode 25, Cement High Tops, and Everybody Hates Chris Season 2, Episode 19, Everybody Hates Gambling. Yeah, so Bosom Buddies, this is our first time talking about this show, and I think it's really apropos that we happen to be covering it on the Mobster episode, because this TV show is, to me, clearly inspired by the movie Some Like It Hot, which is itself one of the first and best examples of the farcical comedy with the gangsters element yeah yeah thrown in there you know that is of course jack lemon and tony curtis as these guys that have to pose as women much like in this show to lay low while the mob is after them because they witnessed a shooting and it follows exactly the same formula that you see repeated in three men and a baby and stuff where it's mostly the sitcom antics and then at the end we get uh uh-oh you know for a little excitement the mobsters are going to catch up with them and we're going to have that you know that that showdown so that dna is present as we go into bosom buddies well and it's interesting that you mentioned that some like it hot as one of the references because when miller boyette some of our favorite producers right miller boyette and their one of their partners this guy named chris thompson i think they pitched this show and they pitched it as a regular buddy comedy and that's what they were trying to write miller boyette did laverne and Shirley. Was they the name were, just Buddies before they came up <laughs> right, with Bosom? before they came up with Bosom Buddies. Um, well, so they pitched it as just like a regular buddy comedy. It was supposed to be their like male answer to a Laverne and Shirley because they had been on Laverne and Shirley and this guy, Chris Thompson, had written on Laverne and Shirley and they wanted to give him this as like, okay, go forth and conquer with this like buddy show. Well, they mentioned in the pitch that it would be like several movies and one of the ones that they mentioned was Some Like It Hot. And the producers at ABC said, great, we will green light you, but only if they're in drag. Did somebody say drag? That's so funny because that's exactly what we're always talking about. That line between when the sitcoms couldn't just be about friends or a couple or a family. Now it's got to have a gimmick. It's got to have a hook. You got to get a gimmick. Yeah. And so it's it's perfect that they were like, what? Did someone say something about some like it hot? Put them in dresses. Now you've got a green light. Now you got a show and we're going to call it. Wait for it. Bosom 
buddies. Yeah. And what I will say is I appreciate the very straightforward explanation of the premise that this show begins with. We've talked about how uh, Melissa and Joey, a few of these shows we've watched, I always struggle a little bit to wait, 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 what's going on here. This show just begins with voiceover saying very plainly, very clearly, here's the situation. What, what is the premise? They have to pose as women because of what? Well, so they their apartment, I think, in the first episode gets demolished around them right. with them like still in it. And so they're on the hunt for a new apartment, but they can't afford much because they're just kind of struggling to break into the ad agency and the ad world in New York City. And so they um, hear about from one of their friends, this girl, Amy, who becomes like who works with them and lives in this hotel for women, the Susan B. Anthony Hotel for Women. They hear that there's an apartment available, but it's only available for women. So she is the only one in on it and knows that they are not women. And so they eventually agree that they're going to dress up as women to try to get this apartment. It all kind of happens because Tom Hanks sees the girl that he's dating, the, the woman played by Donna Dixon, who... BT Dubs marries Dan Aykroyd in real life. Hmm. Um, But so she's this like gorgeous tall blonde and he's like, all right, he convinces Peter Scolari's character that we have to dress up and go and live in this building because I want to date this girl. And so that's the premise. Yeah. Again, identical to Some Like It Hot, where in that one, it's that they have to get a job as in a band and the band is all female, only accepts girls. We should mention, of course, that this show stars two Equally successful actors, right? Tom Mm -hmm. Hanks and Peter Scolari. That's right. Oh, boy. Just this guy, you know, he showed up in the nanny episode we watched for our bank robberies. Peter Scolari played the bank robber. And now we see him in these medicine commercials (laughs) for for some kind of medication or something. I mean, like you look on his IMDb and he did fine. He's showed up in all kinds of movies and TV shows, guest spots and whatnot. Tom Hanks put him in a cameo in uh, uh, That Thing You Do. Yeah, it is. It is just funny to watch it now and just see these two guys on totally equal footing like it is very much this two-hander of a show and just to know like yeah that taller guy on the right became like arguably the most celebrated actor of our lifetime right you know and you can see it i mean they're both good but you see the hanks charisma you know from the start yeah and i mean you talk about michael j fox having that thing tom hanks has that thing of being able to get away with say whatever and do it with such you know character and charisma and a smirk that it's so much fun to watch so yeah, so now we're in the second season of the show, right? So second season of the show, they've retooled some things. Season one was hampered a little bit. They had really good ratings at the start. And then there was a Screen Actors Guild strike. Hmm. And so they had a shortened season one and ratings kind of dwindled. Same kind of thing that has happened with a lot of shows around this last couple of years when they're not out there promoting, not like the promotion cycle back then is like it is now, but they weren't out there promoting. They couldn't do the things. Ratings started dropping off because it was just a silly little show about guys in drag. You know, so we had the strike hit, and then they wanted to retool in season two. The producers and the and the executives at ABC were like, "You need to shake it up." And so they had some shakeups in the cast. They got rid of some people. They made 
Aunt Rachel from Family Matters. She was like a minor character before. She was one of the girls who lived in the building. Now she takes over as the building's manager. She's in on the gag that the guys are not just the girls' brothers, but are actually them in drag. And so that the guys are the guys. So she's in on it now. Tom Hanks's girlfriend character is in on it now. And um, Amy, the girl who plays Amy, has always been in on it. And they also opened, so they get to do a lot less in, in drag yeah, in season like two. Yeah, like none in this episode. Right, very, very little. And the actors were really happy about that because they, when they first signed on, they were signed on to a buddy comedy that turned into this other thing. And yeah. so the actors were really happy about it. And the guy, the showrunner, Chris Thompson, was really happy about it. But it didn't help the ratings and it kept falling off. And so this is the last season. The only reason we see... We, in our age, saw this show at all, because it only ran for two seasons, which is not enough for it to go into syndication. Mm -hmm. The only reason we saw it at all was because Tom Hanks did Splash. Okay. So Splash became famous. The like It was shot the year after it came out in 84. So this ended in 82, came out in 84. He becomes this big, huge, bankable star. NBC buys the rights from ABC or Paramount or whatever, because this was when Miller Boyette was still with Paramount before they moved to Lorimar. So they bought it from Paramount, and then boom, now Saturday evening lineup on NBC, Bosom Buddies is like the anchor show because Tom Hanks is famous for movies now. Yeah, I do remember the commercials for this, you know, just being on in the in the Charles in Charge days like this just floating around in those syndication you know in that syndication world and yeah it's when you mentioned that it is odd for such a short-lived show so these two are advertising guys, right? right? Much in the tradition of Joey and Jesse for Times in Full House and Charlie Sheen in Two and a Half Men. Oh, this yes. Is... No jingles, though. They're not really jingles. Yeah, but it's a, it's a fun, you know, they do this in movies, too. You put your character in a advertising setting and it just, you know, it, it's an easy way to have sort of wacky stuff happen yeah kind of like mad men yeah so in this case we have the show beginning with tom hanks dressed as a penguin and they're shooting a penguin commercial they're pitching a penguin commercial to a, a tuxedo rental company and the guy hates it and hilariously smacks tom hanks in the beak multiple times um which is you know very funny and then holland taylor who's supposed to be their silent partner in their ad agency arrives to be like, all right, did you land the account? I was like, surprise, surprise there, Holland Taylor. The point of this is to show us their business is uh, faltering. They're complaining about they haven't, you know, haven't gotten enough clients or have only got two jobs this year so far. And they're just sort of down in the dumps of like, they're not doing so well. Right. And then Peter Scolari rescues a little girl. We don't get to see it on camera. We just get it told to us. She says it was something out of chips, right? If right. that doesn't take you back in time. She Well, so he runs, they have their front door open. They're all about to leave the ad agency they're all depressed because they didn't get this uh, job or whatever that they didn't get this account and then you hear the tires squealing and peter scolari goes running out of the door and comes back in carrying this little girl who is really like the epitome of precocious child actor scripting she's just like oh my gosh that was so crazy i should get my lawyer yeah 
And well, the, the, the way this all shakes out is that she is the granddaughter of the grandfather. Right? Well, this, this mob boss guy that yeah. they don't recognize. They don't know who that is. He's just like, you know, I'm Alfred Piccoli or something He's like Elliot that. Elliot Pardo. There you go. Elliot Pardo. I think of Don Pardo, the guy who did the voice yeah. on SNL for years and years. So he's like, I'm Elliot Pardo. Um, and they're like, okay, great. And so he's like, you let me know anything I can do for you, anything at all. And they're like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe help us get an account. Like jokingly, you know, they were like, yeah. if only we could have gotten that account. Ha ha. And yeah, and he's like, no, I mean it. You saved my granddaughter. Anything. Yeah, he says you've made a friend for the rest of your life, right. right? And then yeah, the the guy, you know, the prospective client who was all, uh, you know, who shot them down before, comes back to them. He says, I found a penguin head in my bed, right? Well, Which is he, worth yeah, clocking. he doesn't even say it. He at the end of the scene, he pulls the penguin costume head out of the bag, yeah. and like hands it to him, and that's when they realize, oh oh, something's going on here. Somebody has told them, because it's like the next day he comes back and somebody said, hey, don't you know who this Elliot Pardo guy yeah. is? They say when he puts people in the trunk of his car, it's not to sneak them into the drive-in, right? right. Everything they say about this guy has to have some old-timey, like, Reference. retro aspect. They also it. do this thing, instead of saying that he's a mobster, they do this thing where yes. they put their finger on their nose and they, like, twist their nose to the side. Is this, like... Like, cause they have a broken nose or like they're, they have a, like, gangsters have crooked noses I, what is this yeah, a reference this is something to? that happened in multiple episodes that we watched and we are both unaware of this thing and I almost hesitate to bring it up because I wonder if it has some sort of ethnic uh, oh, quality maybe. to it but but whatever it is it was yes this this motion of touching your nose and kind of smushing it to the side is meant to to denote Mafia, yeah, and uh, yeah, Which, and they're doing we both this to were each like other. flummoxed. We're like, what is that? Yeah. I've never seen that. And like, I'm you know, first thing I'm like, oh, maybe because they get in a lot of fights and their noses are crooked, or or isn't there like a thing of like where you got to keep your nose yeah, clean, keep your nose or, clean or, so or they're, they're crooked? Or, I don't yeah. understand. <laughs> Whatever it is, everyone in their orbit, you know, these two bosom buddies, everyone is telling them these this guy is a mafia kingpin, you know, and their business is thriving now. They're getting all these new customers and so you know they're they're feeling this thing of like uh oh we are now indebted to this scary guy right or they're worried that they're going to be and so then they come home one day this is the only bit of drag we get to see at all they're like holding their dress and wig yeah. and like set it down as they walk into their apartment the other thing that every time somebody knocks on a door they go come in and, and they're like oh sorry force of habit you know as a as a nod to them always being dressed yeah. up in previous episodes so they they come home and there's this package on the table and he's like hey i'm gonna need you to watch this guard it with your life and so immediately i'm like oh this has got to be a present for the granddaughter but of course that's not at all what they think they are freaking out they're like that's it we're bag men for the mob now what 
we going to do with this? He's going to kill us if we can't keep it safe. I don't even want to look at it. So they hide it in a closet. Yeah, it's a very similar vibe to the Weekend at Bernie's scenes where you have the two guys, the two young, young bumbling guys that are like sort of both on the same side and this older authority guy that they're intimidated by and they're kind of falling over each other. It just reminded me of that a lot. But yeah, they put the box in their closet and they're just like, yeah, what to do? And, you know, it's pretty soon when they come back to their apartment and it's gone. Right. right. That's kind so of the they next... have to guard it with their life and then show up at this address. It's Sunday at 2 p.m. Like that's the instructions. And so, of course, like like I said, immediately I'm like, oh, it must be a birthday gift. That must be a birthday party. No, no. They're like, oh, my God, it's a drug deal. They're freaking out. They hide the box in the closet. And like you said, of course, next scene, it's time for them to go to this 2 p.m. Sunday meeting and there's a no box in the closet and then we get the whole cast everybody comes in and tears the apartment apart which was just this like random free-for-all of five people Aunt Rachel Dan Aykroyd's wife and this girl named Amy yeah the sister from Back to the Future right oh that's right that's who she is and like all of them like throwing themselves into the closet kind of on top of each other on top of these clothes and then throwing clothes all over the apartment it was a real fun little moment yeah and then after that slapstick scene we sort of get more of that. First of all, they're resigned to die. Yes. I love this mode of <laughs> Tom Hanks and Scolari going, uh, we won't need material possessions where we're going. You know, they're just like, we we are dead men walking. That's right. And so they they go, they report to this guy's mansion, you know, this the, everyone's calling him the grandfather because he's the little girl's grandfather and it's a play on the godfather. Right. And so, you know, he has them wait in like a little office room or whatever. And it's one of those things, you know, like something at a Scooby-Doo where like they pull the wrong book. And then it makes a a painting on the wall slide down and it reveals a safe and these, you know, big bundles of of money start falling out of the safe. And I have to say, I felt nervous. Like (laughs) They did a good job playing that nervousness. As silly as this thing is, it's like while they're waiting... So, you know, this this guy's going to come back into the room every any minute. And there's and money all over yeah, it that they've fumbling. like shoved down their pants yeah, to try to hide it. Because yeah. they're like, oh, no, oh, no. I'm we going can't. like, guys, what are you doing? Just don't touch anything. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess they sort of, you know, cover their tracks or whatever. And the guy comes in with all of his friends. So it's like four or five of these mafia guys. And again, just classic sitcom communication, right? right. Where they tell him... Lack you of know, communication. Yeah, oh, uh, 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 sorry, uh, uh, we don't have the box. And so, of course, the grandfather says to his associates, he says, you know what to do, do it quickly and quietly, and walks out of the room, and the lights go off. And, you know, they're obviously about to be executed, right? There's right. no In possible the other way <laughs> to interpret these events. That's right. And then lights come back up, and grandfather walks in holding said granddaughter. All the thugs, I guess, have hats on. All the mobsters have hats on, yeah. party hats. And they're like, wee surprise! And Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari are like balled up on top of each other, like hiding, trying to yeah. cover their heads. And they hear this. And they're like, what, what? And the present is on the table. And then the grandfather's like, oh, thanks. I sent somebody over to pick it up early. We found it easy in your closet. And so they're like, oh, gosh, okay, all right. You know, we're going to be okay. Yes. What? Go ahead. Well, 
it's very stupid. <laughs> like, that's yeah. it. Like, that's it. <laughs> it is just that thing of like, if he had said anything, like, you have to try to make the situation that misleading to no, have these and he two- could see, any human being could see that they were nervous about something, right? Yeah. Like, that they hadn't protected it with their lives. So, like, why didn't he say something? But, yeah. nope. So, of course, this introduces the trope that we're going to track through all of these episodes, the sort of misunderstanding and the idea of, like, your imagination kind of getting the better of you, right? right? And this idea of, like, somebody with this sort of vaguely intimidating personality or, you know, something like that, you know, making you sort of cross-reference to all the movies you've seen and stuff and go, oh, my God, I'm going to be killed by a a mobster. Yes, instead of just, like... he doesn't care about me. I have nothing. I have no business in his world. Literally, he's just happy that I saved his granddaughter. Yeah. <laughs> so we then might get my favorite line in the whole episode, which is as they're walking out of the party and like the, you know, the godfather saying thank you for, you know, coming and being part of this. You were part of the surprise. We, you know, appreciate you being here. And they're going out. And then Tom Hanks is like, yeah, I have like a million of your dollars stuffed in my yeah. pants. And he's like trying to pull the money out. And the grandfather's just laughing it was (laughs) i was like that's what i was thinking the whole scene like you have his money in your pants get it out get it out yeah yeah no i mean this show is good for that kind of stuff i feel like it's not at perfect strangers level of like crazy uh, slapstick at least that we saw from this one but yeah you can tell that these two definitely like they have some fun with that kind of stuff yeah but yeah this is okay it's like Short of putting aliens or something in your sitcom, it's like, you know, getting a taste of that kind of, like, outlandish right. adventure. Right. You know? Well, and in the next one, we have aliens and mobsters. So here yeah, we go. There we go. Moving on to ALF. Season 3, episode 13, Hideway. Yeah, so we've talked about ALF once before in our Puppets episode. We right. covered the pilot episode. I mean, ALF is what it is, right? It's sort of, to me, it symbolizes exactly the thing I was talking about before. The gimmicky, silly nature of sitcoms in the 80s, the way the whole art form sort of jumped the shark a little bit at that time. And uh, so, you know, love it or hate it, ALF just sort of embodies that, that sort of creative excess and ridiculousness. And so just like you said, to be combining that with the mobster thing is just like, yes, a lot of tropey, sitcom-y stupidity. Yes, but they don't go straight for the, oh no, we've had a run-in with the mob in this one in the way that they do in a lot of the movies you mentioned or even in the Bosom Buddies episode that we just watched. In this, the run-in with the mob happens via an annoying co-worker. Yeah. So Willie, the dad, he has this guy at work who just won't shut up. He just talks and talks and talks. And every night this week, he's been late coming home for dinner and the family's been waiting and holding dinner for Willie because he's stuck at work with this guy yammering his ear off and he just can't get away. And so that's how we're introduced to the character. And then we see the character later on. 
And he is just that. He's one of these guys who just can't stop talking. Well, it turns out he's looking for friends because he in his life is in a very precarious position. He has been relocated by the Witness Protection Program. Yeah, the Witness Protection Program was also a big, you know, concept in all this stuff. If you've seen My Blue Heaven, the great Nora Ephron movie with Steve Martin and Rick Moranis, that's all about life in the Witness Protection Program. So, yeah, I think we as a society are very sort of attuned to this. So, yeah, this gym guy, like you said, is very loquacious. He talks he talks your ear off. That's his whole thing. I just want to say, I'm sure we said the same exact thing the first time we talked about Alf. This guy who plays the dad, Willie, is so... He's just such an amazing he's sitcom such a good actor. presence. He's yeah. just one of those guys. The way he decides to say things is so funny. At that first seeing the cold open alf has bought something i don't even remember what but just the way that willie goes did you say absolutely no refunds you know like it's, it's such a dumb random line and the way he says absolutely no refunds like it just has you on the floor he is so funny and you see how at this point in the show season three right. the kids are like yeah, get him in here for an obligatory scene here or there. You right. know, the way we watch all these shows evolve, like Urkel doesn't exist in episode one and he's taken over the show. Here's one where they decided to make this a dad show more right. than anything else because the dad has the goods. Yeah, the dad and Alf, the interactions are so funny. I remember being annoyed in that uh, pilot episode because they just like hated the mom for no reason from the very beginning. And we still get that, right? Like Alf is still very much like, hey, let's throw Kate to the, you know, to the FBI or the mafia or whoever. He's very much like, well, let's get rid of this wifey. He doesn't like her. Yeah. And she's annoying and she always tells him no. But so does the dad. But like he also likes Alf. So anyway, yeah, it, it's, it's hilarious. Every time the um, actor Max Wright mm -hmm. decides to like have a feeling, he just, you see it kind of bubble up. He's like this anxious little man and it just like bubbles up from within inside him and he's just like, no. Yeah, no, it's the combination of all of his talent and intelligence, but it's also just his natural presence, just the sound of his voice, what he looks like. It's just a perfect combination. The other thing I just wanted to throw out about ALF, the theme music for ALF is such generic, innocuous, sexy pop music that I actually think it's one of the inspirations for our theme music uh, for the sitcom study, the oh, yeah. generic royalty-free track that I grabbed off of whatever site that's meant to evoke this sort of universal 80s, early 90s, goofy sitcom song. I think the ALF music is one of the main inspirations for that. I dig it. So, all right. So in this episode now we have, um, we've met Jim who wants to be called Jimbo. And every time you ask him any personal question, he recites this very specific backstory. I went to high school here. I did this. My hobbies are this and this. I enjoy that. Like he's, yeah. it's like, you know, he's reading his little dossier. Yeah. He enjoys watching filibusters on C-SPAN. I thought that was kind of a funny <laughs> touch, especially I feel like 80s, early 90s, the average person wasn't as familiar with the concept of the filibuster as they are now. So I thought that was kind of a fun Or C-SPAN. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we also need to take a moment and just talk about this guy, right? Todd Sussman. 
you have seen him yeah. in something. This man is like, the he is the sitcom study. You look at his IMDb, he's done one episode of every single sitcom that we would ever want to cover. Yeah, you know, this lineup in general, more than any of our other shows, really started me thinking like, there is basically like 50 or 60 people just floating around being in all these sitcoms right now. Part of it is the fact that we that we covered several shows that are all in the same time period. Sure. But just watching each one of them, I mean, the one we just talked about, Bosom Buddies, is entirely assembled from the spare parts of other yeah. shows and movies and stuff from that time. And then, yeah, just going, you know, going to head of the class and seeing, oh yeah, Ms. Mira, we saw her in half a dozen other sitcoms we covered. It is funny to see, yeah, like these, you know, this was the working LA actors of the 80s, 90s, you know, like there's only so many of them and they the ones that are good do just you you see him again and again again i mean again and again and again so like todd sussman nothing like no big starring vehicle but he has been in everything he also had a little arc on on newhart where he played the off like a sheriff or one of the cops yeah. or something and he so he had like 10 episodes of newhart but everything else is like one episode two episodes one episode and literally every sitcom yeah no it is Page goes on and on. And yeah, he's this guy, he's a rumpled suit. You know, he's this guy that looks like this white collar, middle-aged guy, but he looks like someone you see at the airport at 2 a.m. or something. This this is my nightmare. This whole scenario of this guy coming over, you know, it starts with... And won't stop talking to you and let you out of the conversation. And also (laughs) just won't take a hint about like parting company you know this starts with the dad dropping him off their colleagues like you said the dad you know that our dad of the family willie thinks he's taking this guy home giving him a lift home from work and then it turns out that the guy wants to to come over and have dinner with them it's this thing of inviting himself over of doing the thing oh i guess i could go to my lonely apartment i guess it's okay that they turned off my power or whatever it is like he's just laying on doesn't work yeah so i can can't make mac and cheese tonight. Yeah, he's laying on the guilt again and again. First to be invited to dinner, then to stay and and hang out with them. You know that you know they they try to get him to leave. I'm going to put my foot down and just tell him it's time to go to sleep. But that he can't go to sleep, so they let him stay in the house. Like it's just like you said, he's he's lonely. He won't stop talking. He won't take a hint, and uh, he won't get out of their hair. Right. And so right before he goes to bed, right. So he convinces them that, you know, oh, you know, don't worry about driving me home. I'm used to it. I'll just, you know, I'll walk or I'll take the bus or whatever. And he's like, no, no, I'll drive you home. And he's like, yeah, it'll just warm me up because my apartment's so cold or something. He has some reason why he can't go home. So right before when they say, well, why don't you just stay here? You know, we'll move the boy into his sister's room and then you can have his room or whatever. He reveals then that he, you know, thank you for being so nice. You don't have to be so nice. I, I'm just really lonely. I don't have any friends ever since I'm in the witness, pro- you know, well, I can't say it, but right. I'm in the witness protection. The program. idea is this guy is so loquacious that it's like, that's the joke is his whole life depends on him keeping the secret, but he can't keep a secret. So yes, he tells them he's in the witness protection program. And is that what ignites Alf's imagination? Because it's a running thing. Alf 
you know, he's not allowed to be seen by anyone, obviously. So he stays home and he watches TV all day. So he always has these notions right. of like, you know, his, like I said before, his imagination getting the better of him. Right. And so usually on ALF, when we have a guest stay over or somebody staying overnight, the joke of the show is that they end up seeing ALF and then they have to like make up something of like, oh, he's, you know, our hairy cousin or the dog or whatever. Right. And in, this is like the only episode of ALF where they ever have an overnight guest who doesn't see Alf. So Alf immediately hears this, that, you know, he's been a witness in this case, and that's why he's being protected now. And he's like, the mob is coming to get him. So Alf goes out into the backyard and sets all these traps in the backyard to protect the family and protect the house. Yes, we've got a bunch of references here, because Alf immediately says, uh, when when they tell him to just go to sleep, he says, what, and wake up with Mr. Ed's head in my bed? Yep. So we get our second horse head reference. Or, you know, penguin head, whatever. But it's the horse head that (laughs) he's referencing. And then when he goes out and does this sweep of the the yard or whatever to check for criminals, it turns into a dragnet parody because he's talking to the camera. And this is one of those things, if you're under the age of like 80, you might not be familiar with this. But Jay knows because he's an old man. Because of reruns. Yeah. He says, my name is Alf. I carry a bat. That's right. right. Which is a reference carry to, a badge. Yeah. My name is Friday. I carry a badge from Dragnet, which I'm connecting the dots right now. Tom Hanks was in the movie parody of Dragnet. Right around the same time. But anyway, yeah, he, he sets a trap, like an old-fashioned net trap, like yep. you're you know, hunting for bears in the woods or That's something. Right. <laughs> and of course, he catches Willie in his trap. And it's this great physical comedy bit where Willie is legitimately suspended with his arms yeah. and legs kind of up in the air in this hammock-looking thing that is a net trap and he's kicking and pulling and trying to get out of it and then the neighbor like wilson style sticks his head through the through the gate and is like everything okay over here this is another perfect max Wright delivery he goes trevor what i'm doing is very complicated and requires all of my concentration if you would like me to explain it, I will do so at a later time. And it, again, just the way this guy says things is just perfect. Well, and it is, it's such a stupid scene that I'm like, how are you going to get out of this? Like, what are you going to say? And then he does that. Then he does this whole little delivery that makes Trevor seem like an imbecile, right? Trevor, if I'm going to do something very important, you know? I mean, he just sounds so serious. And, and Trevor's like, oh, oh. Okay, boss, whatever. I'll yeah. talk to you tomorrow and like backs out of the backyard. Serious and exasperated. <laughs> yes. That this guy makes an art of exasperation is just we so. We love perfect. him so much. And so then Alf lets him down. Of course, he collapses into a pile. I mean, it's like, it's like Looney Tunes. He's yeah. like collapsed into this pile of net and um, has to like kind of dig his way out and then is yelling at Alf and is like, no more traps. He, nobody's coming for him. It's not even like a real 
you know, organized crime case. I don't Would you remember what the case was? It was something kind of silly. It didn't even seem like it was serious mobster stuff. Yeah, I don't remember what was the original thing that, you know, got him placed in the witness protection program. But the next big thing that happens is an actual guy, an intruder, comes prowling into the yard. Yeah, this guy in a gray suit comes like over the fence. We get, again, I love the sitcom action scenes or suspense scenes or whatever just them trying to do in that little multi-camera setup with their 20-foot set you know <laughs> trying to stage that as in a way that would make you feel like you're watching you well know, and a this crime dude movie. looks like Ray Liotta and yes. he falls into a pit in the yes. backyard that Alf has now dug and covered yes he falls into a pit and I guess just immediately loses consciousness well he bangs his head on the sewer pipe that right. is now exposed right. Of course, all, Alf is dug so far down. Yes, this is all described to us. We just see him kind of fall, you know, out of the camera. Yeah, view. we see him fall into the, like the tiger trap. Yeah. And so, yeah, they've caught this guy. He's unconscious. But, uh, you know, the dad comes out and checks his his wallet, his identification and sees like, oh, he's an FBI agent. You know, Alf, you've you've subdued an FBI man or something. And right. So, and this is the second episode of Alf that we've watched where FBI has been involved, right? Because the first one, they were coming to investigate ALF, right? And it was like the agency for alien activity or something, remember? Well, because this is, I guess, before the X-Files, but you still had that connotation of like, if somebody's going to be investigating aliens, I guess it would be the FBI. It's going to be the Fed. So anyway, so they're all freaked out. They're like, ALF, you've got to get out of here. You know, we've got an unconscious Fed in our house. Oh my gosh. And then there's a knock on the door. Yeah. And it's more FBI agents. Right. Uh, who immediately recognize Jimbo, who is also now known as Steve Arino. Yeah. And they're Well, like, they say that's his real name, which right. I thought that was funny. Just this idea of like, all right, I got to come clean. I'm not Jimbo. I'm Steve Arino. Yeah. He's like, well, call me really, though, call me Steve Arino. And there's this ongoing gag of like, they call him Jim and he's like, Jimbo. Yeah. And they're like, I don't want to call you that. And then same thing with Steve, Steve Arino. And the FBI agents are like, I'm not calling you that. And so, but they immediately recognize him as his handlers, right? So they look at the unconscious guy on the couch and they're like, uh, that's not one of us. Yes, which... Again, I know this this isn't impressive, but I spotted this plot twist a mile away. A real <laughs> FBI guy wouldn't prowl around your house like that. Well, I don't know. <laughs> so, so, yeah, the 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 guy that, you know, Alf was scolded for for knocking out, it was he was right to knock him out yeah. because he was actually a bad guy. And so, when the real FBI guys are sort of reprimanding Jimbo for being like, you can't go around telling everybody who you so are, you told you're blue people and you're again. The thing that I found funny, again, not knowing all the ins and outs of how the real mafia works, if there even is such a thing, they go, the Cleveland syndicate's looking for you. That's right. That's right. That was the other piece where I was like, wait a minute, the Cleveland mob? (laughs) I'm not sure. Like, I could believe New York, Chicago, LA. I mean, we don't want to run afoul of any really hard, you know, hard Cleveland gangsters. Please don't come for us. It almost (laughs) seems like the Alf writer's room forgot that, like, it didn't take place in Jersey or something. And then, like, right before they finished, someone was like, wait a minute, this takes place in, like, Cincinnati. 
or whatever in the suburbs of Ohio. No, and, I think they were trying to make it as like minimally scary as possible. Sure. Because this is well after ALF had all of their censorship controversies. But yeah, so the whole thing is sort of, you know, taken care of. Yeah, and- they say, you know, say goodbye to your new friends because you can't and you have to stop telling people who you are. This is going to be your fifth placement. And so they take him off and then we have a really fun little moment where the gangster guy starts to wake up and they like stand him up and walk him away. We get no encounter, no, like that actor has zero lines. Yes. <laughs> he was yeah. just there to like fall in a hole and yeah, be escorted off the set. a featured extra that is also somehow the antagonist of the episode. Of the entire episode, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, and yeah, I just wanted to also ask because so much of this is Alf overhearing things from the kitchen or popping up in his little hole there. If I were to tell a contractor that I wanted an ALF window in my kitchen, do you think they would know what I mean? Well, I think what you would be asking for is called a pass-through. Okay. (laughs) Those exist in many, many homes. Yeah, to me, this this is like 100% an ALF thing. This is what you do (laughs) if someone in your family is a puppet. Have you not? You've never lived in a house that had a pass-through and you've never seen them? I've seen various semi-open kitchens and stuff like that, but that particular thing of having that little open window that's just the right size for a puppet you know, or top to of pass your body through yeah. dishes <laughs> uh, was just it just struck me as like, boy, it is fortunate that he happened to to crash at a family's house that has this perfect kitchen for that him to one communicate these. with them. Yeah, well, and I like that it's got the, you know, kind of louver doors as the little covering to it. So he just like throws them open as soon as he hears people leave the room or a door shut. And then he's like, I'm here and I'm talking. But yeah, I think a lot of homes, though, a lot of people who had those pass throughs, like, uh, they have since renovated their house because having that open kitchen is much more like in. Well, and after Alf, it was just like, you know, Why the do whole I need thing this Alf window shark. in my yeah, house? Now yeah. it's like, great. Everyone's <laughs> just going to be asking me, where's Alf with your big kitchen window? <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, look, tracking the trope, it's the same deal, right? It's giving us some proximity to this seedy criminal underworld or this this danger or, you know, it's it's giving us a little bit of taste. In this case, it's not even the person's imagination got the best of them. It actually is improbably enough a real An actual situation. scary moment, yeah. Yeah, but same thing, bringing a little bit of adventure to our mundane lives. That's right. All right, moving on to Head of the Class. Season four, episode 25, Cement High tops. Yeah, so we talked about Head of the Class in our first podcast ever when Arvid was considering losing his virginity. And of course, we talked about the historic trip behind the Iron Curtain when Head of the Class went to Russia. This was one of my favorite shows growing up as a kid. I watched along with this faithfully. But now we're in season four, Head of the Class. And so- the penultimate episode of season four we're only one now one episode away from mr moore saying bye-bye yep and then we're gonna have one more season with billy Connolly. but yes even in season four you had this shake-up where a lot of the original cast members weren't there anymore they brought in a bunch of new people we have vicky the sort of hippy dippy new agey girl we have alex the hot hispanic guy we have jasper who is academy award Award winner Ki Hu Kwan. I apologize for definitely pronouncing that wrong, but you know, the guy from 
everything everywhere all at once and the Goonies and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. We have Rain Pryor as TJ, the girl who transferred from the remedial class into the honors program. And we have the character that this episode is going to be all about, Aristotle, who is a uh, aspiring videographer. Right. So Aristotle, he gets a job doing the um, videotaping for a wedding. And Mr. Moore goes with him because one of the things that the family has asked for is that they get these interviews with everybody who's come to the wedding, you know, about the wedding, about the couple and all that kind of stuff, which I guess was a thing for a while. I sort of remember going to weddings in the 90s where people were asking and in the 2000s would like ask me stuff. I absolutely hated this, but I've done a few wedding videos in my day as a video guy. And yeah, that was horrible. Now, Mr. Moore is an actor. He's a sort of out of work actor. So it makes sense that he would help Aristotle in this way. But what you really see in this episode is the head of the class thing of Mr. Moore weirdly inserting himself into the students' lives in more and more improbable ways for the sake of the show. Right. And so he's gone with him. He is the one who's like serving as the producer. He's asking the questions. He's doing like the interviews. Yeah. And so now we're back at school and they had a great time and they're telling the class like the story of the wedding and how it was just so lavish and so much going on. And then they get a call from the principal's office and they need Aristotle to come into the principal's office. And Aristotle is encountered with an FBI agent who wants him to turn over the tape, kid. Yeah. Now, Dr. Samuels is squeaking in this the whole time. We get a very funny, dumb subplot where Dr. Samuels is walking around with a little squeak thing, like a little stress, stress reliever thing. But and, and he explains what it is. You know, in this first encounter when Aristotle and Mr. Moore ask him about it and he's explaining it to us, the audience, but then he will never explain it ever again. So for the rest of the episode, he's going to be squeaking in the presence of anybody who he is with and never explains this is why that's happening. No, it allows all these scenes to like have a moment where everyone just kind of looks at him like, why are you squeaking? And Mr. Moore to roll his eyes and then eventually take the stress ball. Yeah. Now we get the second occurrence of the touching the nose thing. That's right. Right. This is all, again, this is sort of lots of intimations and innuendos and stuff. They bring in Mr. Moore and Aristotle in to talk to this FBI guy and I don't know how it plays out, but it's it's like Dr. Samuels is the one that finds himself saying like this. Right, because is- the FBI guy is being very cagey. Yeah. Like he is not giving enough information. He's just basically like, you got to give me the tape and I can't tell you anymore. And Mr. Moore's like, mm, you've got to have a subpoena. And he's like, you know, talking to Aristotle, like, are you going to let this guy talk for you? He's just a teacher. You better give it to me or you're going to end up in jail. And Dr. Samuels is like, you've got to give this to him. And otherwise, you know, these other guys, they're going to come after you. Like these, these guys are the good guys. You know, those other guys there. And he like pushes his nose to the side again. Yeah, that's the universal sign that they're in the mafia. And so we get from the start, like you said, this FBI agent is being weird. So when 
we find out stuff about him later in the episode, it's not going to be that surprising that he's not totally on the level. But yeah, he says, this video you took at the Gagliardi wedding is evidence. We we need you to give it to us as part of our investigation. And so, of course, because this is head of the class, they bring this back to the classroom and this becomes a symposium on, you know, the stature of Italian-Americans in contemporary society and the stereotypes we have about anyone whose name ends in a vowel. They keep using that phrase. If your name ends in a vowel, then our society deems you as a mobster or a criminal. And uh, yeah, I think this is like we were saying, this is mid to late 80s. So you go to the movies and everything is Pacino and De Niro in something where one of them is a cop and one of them is the mafia guy. And right. they we're just like surrounded by that stuff. Yeah. And so that the class has this whole debate and what makes you think they're even affiliated with that? They own a, a cement company. Oh, well, an Italian family that owns a cement company. You know what that's all about. And, you know, Aristotle's just like, you know, I don't think so. I didn't get the, that vibe. And Mr. Moore, what about you? And he's like, well, let's let's look at it, you know, objectively. And then it becomes, like you said, this symposium or this whole lesson that they're going to, you know, have different cases and different take different sides and, and talk about it. And so, yeah. And what it comes to is like Aristotle at the end of this whole conversation kind of realizes it doesn't matter if they're mobsters or not, like I can't give this tape. Like, I can't do this unless they have a subpoena, right? And Mr. Moore's like, that's right, and I'll support you with that, and that'll be fine. And then the, like, Alex P. Keaton guy speaks up. And he's like, Alan. Alan. Yeah, that's right. It's Alan. And so he speaks up and he's like, what are you talking about? You have like, this is the government. You have to do, you know, are you not a patriot? You have to be a good American. And if the FBI asks for something, you just give it to them. And so then the rest of the class is like, whoa, 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 that's not so true. And then it kind of comes around now that uh, uh, Aristotle has sort of decided that like, these guys might be mobsters. And now he's like, well, it's a no-win situation. If I give them the tape, if I give the FBI the tape, then the mobster family is going to kill me. And if I don't give the FBI the tape, then they're going to put me in jail. So there's literally nothing I can do in this situation and have a good life. Right. It's, again, the stereotypes and the imagination taking hold. We have Dennis, the wisecracker, saying you can be a pillar of society or the base of a pillar of society, right? (laughs) right? You're going to get cemented below some building or something if you run afoul of these guys. And yes, this is always the dilemma, you know, that goes through your mind if you think about these kind of situations is like, well, the police are never going to like arrest everybody. They're not going to totally get these guys and remove any risk. So it's like, you know, if I'm some kind of stool pigeon, I'm always going to be in danger. Right. But at the same time, I'm going to be in danger with the law if I don't cooperate. And yes, Mr. Moore, of course, being the grown up hippie that he is, who's always sort of like informed by that 60s sort of revolutionary spirit, but is also very much the responsible adult. His compromise that he's going to advocate is you insist that they present a subpoena and then you you give over 
the tape. So right. you're sort of making sure that, you know, that that due process happens. Like as a normal happens. citizen, like you follow the rules and these people can't be mad at you because they knew you weren't in the family if they, you know, if they even are that in the first place. Right. And when this sketchy FBI guy comes back the next day and says, hand over the tape. He's and, even more sketchy the yeah. second day. Well, I love how when Mr. Moore says, you know, he says something like, well, what's really most important here is our constitutional rights. And the guy goes, oh, Oh, you're one of those. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he says, like, all right, I'll be back with a subpoena. And the next major plot turn is that uh, Aristotle says, it's a moot point. I erased the tape by accident. Or, uh, no, I never recorded. Okay. I hit the wrong button and the tape is blank. And the guy does not believe it. Like, the FBI agent is like, that's really convenient. So Aristotle doesn't show up the next day to school on time. He's late. And that's because he had been tearing his apartment apart trying to figure out if he had just like if maybe the VCR wasn't working and all you know he was trying to figure out why the tape wasn't playing anything and his only thing that he could come to was that oh my god I never hit record so now not only is the FBI going to be mad at me but now I have to go tell this family that may or may not be mobsters that I don't have anything that they've paid me for so Mr. Moore's answer to that is like well you just have to give the money back and you know you have to tell the family and you have to give them their money back and Aristotle's like uh the only way I could shoot the wedding was to use the money that they gave me to buy a camera yes so and that was why it. he was so incompetent with the equipment was because it was new to him he didn't know how it worked right and he's he an only... aspiring videographer and this is his very first try yeah, this whole thing <laughs> they do their best to address this plot hole you know Eric says like well you dope how could you do that and he says well you know it was new equipment what do you want from me I didn't know how it worked it still is very silly to think not only did he go through the whole event and never check that he was actually recording, but this is now several days later. And at no point did he ever like pop in the tape to just check Look and see it. how it came out. No. Yeah. But oh, so my. nonetheless, yeah, yep. the like you said, the FBI doesn't believe him. And so he just sort of leaves it as like, hey, look, you're in trouble, kid. You better figure something out or, or we're going to get you. And then meanwhile, they're like, well, you know, we sort of have bigger fish to fry here. We have to tell the alleged mob patriarch, this, you know, Mr. Gagliardi, that we messed up his video. So the yep. next stop is the Gagliardi apartment. That's right. And this the is where family, we have to tell the family that they're only daughter's wedding video doesn't exist. Right. And this is where for me in a post-Sopranos world, the notion of him being some sort of mafia figure kind of goes out the window because yeah. they live in this very modest, you know, small sort of messy little apartment. Right. And it's, I guess, meant to show you this is just a nice old Italian couple. You know, right. he's sitting there in his little t-shirt and his suspenders or whatever. He's got a knife and a, and a salami and he's like cutting off size slices of his you know little salami pepperoni kind of thing and like eating pieces of his meat off the knife right which again in in the sopranos even like the middle tier guys live in nice houses right. in jersey you know so yes this is just a nice working class family and you get how yes the guy could be intimidating the way an old dude can be you know sure. and uh so yeah you know they're all nervous they do. This one, I think, doesn't have a horse's head reference, but it does have him say, uh, what have I done to you that you would treat me so disrespectfully? Which right. is, quote, 
directly from The Godfather. So, you know, still can't escape The Godfather references. But so, yeah, Aristotle comes clean, you know? Yeah. He he doesn't want to, but Mr. Moore is like, no, no, come on. And so then, of course, the dad is devastated and then the mom is all upset. Now we have the scene where... Um, before they go into the house, right, before they go into that apartment, Aristotle has taken or has gotten the stress ball. And so oh, he's yeah. squeaking. Mr. Moore takes it away from him, puts it in his jacket pocket. And this scene ends with the dad and the mom on the phone in Italian, like so upset and so angry, calling relatives, letting them know that they don't have the vi- wedding video and Mr. Moore just squeaking. Yeah, well, the savior here is the mom because, you know, this dad, the actor does an amazing job of playing this dismay and this sort of like coping process because he is very angry and we the audience especially for me as a little kid watching this again immersed in the world of all these dumb movies <laughs> and not understanding the thing i just said about a real mafia boss would not, would not live, live in, in a modest like apartment this. yeah so you're still sort of meant to think or like the character aristotle is still meant to feel a little intimidated so this guy is getting so angry and then his wife, the nice old Italian lady, goes like, eh, so we don't have the the video. We've got the pictures. My sister took all the pictures. And you see this guy going, yeah, yeah, we got the pictures. You know, he's kind of like little by little acclimating to the idea of like, all right, I don't have a videotape. I do have the pictures. I guess it's not so bad. Little by little so, sort of thawing out and becoming more, you know, understanding. Right. So then we go back to school. The next scene is like the next day at school. Neither Mr. Moore nor Aristotle are on time. And the whole class is sitting in the hallway. And Dennis rocks up with this other... FBI agent. Enrico Spizzullo. But Dennis doesn't tell everybody that he's an FBI agent. Like right. Dennis plays it again, like the third act of one of these dumb movies, like, oh no, now the mob is on the premises. This is the hitman that's coming for Aristotle. So again, you know, playing into this emphasis that this one is going to have on the Italian American aspect of this, Dennis comes in and says, Hey, everybody, this is Enrico Spizzullo, you know, sort of meant to be like, doesn't that and tell he, you like, everything? Looks at the rest of the class and like winks at them and points at the guy and then they all are like oh yeah we haven't seen Mr. Moore Aristotle no he doesn't go here anymore he transferred yeah he transferred and they're like okay well what about Dr. Samuels and they're like he's in there Yeah. So we go back into Dr. Samuel's office. Mr. Moore and Aristotle do show up. Well, they were already in Mr. Uh, Dr. Samuel's office. The rest of the cast just hadn't seen them yet. Gotcha. But so we have similar to the end of ALF where it's sort of like, okay, okay, the legit reasonable FBI agents are here to sort of retroactively explain everything that happened. Right. So it turns out this guy, this FBI agent, went to the wedding with the other FBI agent's estranged wife, ex-wife. And they went as friends to this wedding, okay? And the other FBI agent has been stalking his ex-wife and wanted to see the video to catch his colleague and his ex-wife in some sort of situation that would allow him to be like, see, I told you you're scamming on my lady. 
even though he's like, I'm not scamming on his lady. I'm just, we went as friends because like she somehow knows the bride or something. Yeah. So we get similar to Alf. We get like a, in this case, it's not a fake FBI guy, but it's just a jealous lover, uh, like petty, sketchy FBI guy who is not Italian, by the way. So you really see how this episode is like head of the class going like, you know what? There is some stigmatization and stereotyping of the Italian-American community that we have to address. And like they are very (laughs) much taking it on their shoulders to portray both the FBI and the Italian-American community as like these positive figures. And like, hey, everybody, you really need to check your thinking about this, you know, because this Enrico Spizzullo guy just comes off as so, you know, reasonable and benevolent. Yeah, and, he's know. like, hey, I'm really embarrassed that my employee is doing this. That's, you know, uh, yeah. and he even says, he was like, well, they were like, well, why does he want the tape in the first place if you guys aren't investigating this family? And he's like, well, that's a little bit more personal and embarrassing. Yeah. So, and then he tells them, he's like, yeah, I took his ex-wife to the wedding. So but that's it's, why. It's just funny how like it's addressing this, this, uh, like, of course there are those stereotypes, but it's, it's sort of lecturing you like, ah, I bet when that first FBI guy showed up, you thought he was on the level because he wasn't Italian. There's and- no way anybody thought that first FBI guy was on the level. That guy was crooked from the day no, he spoke. No, of course, but that's what makes it so sort of silly. And then this guy at the end being like, oh, you didn't know about him, right? Because this guy shows up at the school, Italian. I don't, oh, what are, are you think? serious? Wait, hold on. What? I don't, I don't know that it was trying trying to lay it on as thick as you're saying in the sense that they cast the waspy guy as the first agent and the italian guy as the later one that and then like they reveal dennis knew all along but he didn't tell them oh yeah it was dennis was definitely playing on the classes stereotypes for sure because dennis was like i'm not gonna he's the trickster he doesn't tell anybody anything but yeah he was doing that on purpose and was like oh look you know all of you yesterday who were in the symposium class acting like there were no stereotypes look what you all did yeah i think they're they're playing on those stereotypes in any case and just sort of taking this air of like we need to address this you know <laughs> yeah. there have been too many movies where the italians are portrayed negatively so now there's this episode of head of the class <laughs> all right moving on to everybody hates chris season two episode 19 everybody hates chris gambling. Yeah, so this is a newer one. We are in the world of the more sort of modern uh, single camera shows. I didn't really watch this. What's your relationship with this? Same. This This is one of these ones that was on like the the CW. I think it was on like UPN and then in the merger was on CW. And it was in that sort of weird time, right? This is 2007. And I'm not watching as much TV. And especially I'm not watching stuff on the CW. I also have a pet peeve about things where the title is a spoof or a reference to something else. That's what annoys me about the movie Shaun of the Dead. And so (laughs) I don't like that it's called Everybody Hates Chris. I feel like Everybody Loves Raymond was already a comedic thing. 
You can't make the name of the show a play on another comedy thing. Like, that just always kind of stuck in my craw. Uh, That's really funny. I never put that together. That it was a play on Everybody yep. Loves Raymond? It was just kind of like, nope, this is just like, didn't give a shit about Everybody Loves Raymond. Don't really, didn't really give a shit about Everybody Hates Chris. Didn't put two and two together at all till but this do you, moment. do you acknowledge now that one is probably referring I, to the other? I, I mean, perhaps. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I just, I'm like, wow, that's an interesting thought. I never would have put that together had you not said it. Well, yes, that was one of the reasons, I guess, why I didn't tune into it. But really, it's like you said, we were young adults at this time. I just wasn't watching the sitcoms. What jumps out at me first thing now is that, you know, this is uh, in the style of so many of these single camera sitcoms, we get the voiceover at the beginning, just like The Wonder Years, like My Name is Earl. Didn't Scrubs have this? Yeah. And this is a lot like The Wonder Years in that this is Chris Rock narrating his own teenage years. Yeah. And so we get that same thing. The cadence of it reminds me of the My Name is Earl bit a little bit. You get that weird sort of like, I'm kind of yelling it at you and this sort of staccatic kind of Well, uh, but that's just the way Chris Rock talks. Yeah, I guess. But yeah, so he's telling about how he became this sort of um, like gambling soothsayer when he was a kid. And that's what this episode is going to be about. Now, I went on a little bit of a sort of odyssey of the mind with this because as this episode gets going, it begins with him sort of ingratiating himself into with this this local guy, right? The doc, well, he's the, so this is an established character. So, right. do, I mean, first of all, can we just talk about this cast? You want to talk about a cast that is like made from all the sitcoms? Yeah, we get right? the second Jack Hay in two weeks. We get Jack Hay. We get Tashina. I don't remember her, Ar- Arnold, who is she's Pam from Martin. Um, she and Tisha Campbell are like best friends for life. They both were in Little Shop of Horrors when they were teenagers. I mean, they've been together forever. So. So Tashina Arnold <laughs> is the mom, and um, you've got uh, JJ from Good, Good Time. Times. He plays the he plays the mom's dad, so Chris's grandfather, who is like the reason for this episode. The reason the mom hates gambling is that. JJ from Good Times was the grandfather and lost a bunch of money, always lost at gambling. So now Chris's mom doesn't like gambling because her dad was sort of a degenerate gambler. The Doc character is Huggy Bear from Starsky and Hutch. And like he was in Shaft and all sorts of other movies, those black exploitation movies. He's hilarious. I mean, just like every time you turn around, Terry Crews, Crews, every time you turn around, there's a famous person like on the screen. This is just a great cast. And then you also have uh, Chris, the guy who plays young Chris is now in Abbott Elementary. Yeah, he's a guy I saw a lot in the 2010s pop up on different shows and things. So yeah, this Doc character, this like storekeeper guy or whatever, he's he's not a mafia guy per se. You no, get the not impression- at all. Doc likes to gamble, but everybody likes to gamble. That's the premise of the episode is that everybody is hoping that they can win their way out of the neighborhood by getting a big score. But the reality is, is they're all just like losing their money all the time and nobody ever really wins big. So Doc is one of these guys that like he always bets and he um, and then he usually bets like other 
other people in the neighborhood, but he also places bigger bets with somebody bigger that yeah. we meet later on that is connected with the mafia, right? But so this is just him kind of getting a getting a reputation for winning a lot and so everyone's like well hey where are you getting your picks doc because he starts winning yeah and the way he starts winning is that chris just sort of randomly mentions that he knows stuff about basketball and is like man you shouldn't pick them to win they're not going to win these other guys are going to win and here's why doc doesn't listen to him and then that exact same thing happens so then the next day doc's like hey tell me who's going to win this basketball game and Chris is like, oh, yeah, probably this team because of all these reasons. And he's like super into NBA. So he's telling him like he sounds like a, you know, a courtside analysis guy. And so Doc listens to him and is like, great, put my money on that. And so now Doc's going on this hot streak and everybody in the neighborhood's like, whoa, Doc's on a hot streak. We got to ask Doc who he's picking. So he wasn't like a kingpin in the neighborhood until Chris started giving him tips. And that's how Chris became what do they call him Chrissy the Black yes Chrissy the Black so this was what I wanted to talk about a little bit because watching this episode I'm going this is reminding me of like two different Simpsons episodes because there's one where Bart becomes involved with the mafia we get I think the first appearance of Fat Tony played by Joe Montana as the mob boss. And he and Bart become sort of taken under their wing because he's a prodigy at making Manhattans and he's the best bartender in town. And then there's another episode where Lisa has this uh, sort of like uh, supernatural ability to predict football games. And so Homer starts taking advantage of that and starts hanging out with her for daddy-daughter day when really he just wants her to predict football games so he can make bets on them and win. And that episode of The Simpsons is called Lisa the Greek, right? So I went, okay, Lisa the Greek... I don't know what that's in reference to. I know that there was a big movie called Zorba the Greek. Right. So I do this whole... I've never seen that movie. But so, isn't there a thing like Jimmy the Greek? Well, I'm getting to Okay. <laughs> so I do this whole deep dive on the movie Zorba the Greek, and I'm pouring through this, you know, all of these plot synopses going like, this has absolutely nothing to do with gambling, with crime. Like, why is why are there all these things called blank the Greek when the movie Zorba the Greek has nothing to do with it. So I went back to the Simpsons angle and referenced where that title came from. And yes, it is from American bookie and sports commentator Jimmy the Greek Snyder, who I guess had this preternatural ability to predict the outcome of of sports games. And so... Yeah, I think this episode is a play on that. Not I had the no Greek. idea who Jimmy the Greek was, but that's hilarious that I was like not at all thinking about Zorba and just this other thing that I didn't even know what it was. That's yeah. funny. So I think it's a little bit of a play on that. And yeah, also definitely. the Goodfellas thing of just like 
Johnny Two Times and like Jimmy the Nut or, you know, like all of those <laughs> crazy, uh, you know, like they would have names like that. In well, those. and then we get those names like that once the like two mob characters right. kind of come in into this whole scene. Right. We get Big Pussy from The Soprano. Yeah, is, he's uh, Pauly or something, yeah, right? Yeah, Pauly the Bookie. And so, yeah, this escalates just because of, like you and said. Solly is the other one. Yeah, just like you said, the, you know, it sort of catches the attention of these higher up mob kingpins right who Italian are the americans yeah. based on the stereotypes so you got these two guys that i guess there's solly the bookie or Polly. i can't remember which one there's solly and Polly. one of them's the bookie one of them's like an enforcer right yeah. so chris is walking down the street and this guy in a black car starts following him and is like hey you know Doc's been on quite a run there lately. You need to make sure yeah. that he stops. And so then Chris is like, I need to give the opposite pick to Doc. Otherwise, they're going to kill Doc. Yeah. So he gives him the opposite of what he would think. And then every like the whole house of cards starts tumbling down, right? Because Doc gives the pick to Jack Hay. So then um Julius, uh, Terry Cruz's character, goes to Jack A and is like, hey, don't tell my wife, but I want in on this action. Everybody in the neighborhood is winning. I want to try and win. And then you have the side story where the two siblings, um, Chris's little brother and little sister, are betting over checkers, like who can win a checkers game because the, you know, the older brother keeps winning and the little sister is mad that she keeps getting teased. And so they're going to bet on a game. So the mom finds out about all of this betting because Big Pussy from The Sopranos comes knocking on the door and is like, hey, did Chrissy the Black do what he was told to do? And she's like, who the hell are you? Get out of my apartment. Like, get out of here. And is like, you better get your fingers out of the door. I'm going to smush yeah, them. This is a fun reversal of what we have in all the other episodes, because up until now, we've had these normal working class people going, oh my gosh, the, the mafia is probably after us when they're really not. And now we have the actual mafia enforcer knocking at your door and the character goes, going like, get out of here. I don't recognize your authority. I'm not intimidated by you. Yeah, not intimidated by you at all. You know, so the, the other part of the story or the other part of the show that, you know, we haven't talked about because this is later in the second season or whatever, but they moved there. Like the his family, Chris's family, the show starts when they move out of like the projects and into a regular apartment in Bed-Stuy, which is still like, you know, kind of described as like this sketchy neighborhood, you know, Bed-Stuy, do or die or something like that is the tagline they use and uh, in the show. And so they're saying it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it was out of the projects, but it was still kind of a scary neighborhood or whatever. And um, so mom, the mom in this is tough. Like she's from the projects and she does is not scared of whoever you say you are. Shut up and get your fingers out of my door. You're going to lose them. Yeah. No, this is very much... Like we said, assuming this is all sort of coming from Chris Rock's life and his anecdotes and stuff, this is very much a, like, let me tell you about my mom. She was such a tough old broad. You know, you get the impression maybe this is a sort of subjective, you know, portrayal. And this actress is great. I oh, mean, she's so good. Yeah. To the point, you know, they make her a caricature in a fun way. Like she, the whole family is in the doghouse when, you know, the jig is up because the mobsters came to the house 
just like you said. So she's like, okay, I know now that my son is Chrissy the Black, the, you know, prognosticator. I know that my husband has been gambling against my wishes. And even the other kids are gambling on checkers and stuff. And so, yeah, she just like doles out this. She goes on a tirade and just, well, and the other thing to note is that oftentimes her dialogue is improvised. She is such a good actress that they would let her just go. So you can see some of that happen. In fact, there's one part where she like misspeaks and Terry Crews like says something to her and she like immediately turns it back around and like, you want to make it about that? Yeah, she just, she plays that thing of like, I'm so angry that it's funny to me how angry I am. Yeah. You know? and just like seething. Uh, yeah, she's really good. And that's sort of how it ends, right? Like yeah, my they last all note get on their, this. They, well, so they all kind of learn their lesson, right? Because they realize, so Chris has to call Doc and say, hey, I... You know, I I told you a lie on purpose. And so then Doc goes around and calls everybody and says, pull your bets, pull your bets, pull your bets, pull your bets, right? But then it turns out, so in this instance, the Lakers are playing Phoenix and everybody has bet that Phoenix is going to win because there's no way that Phoenix was going to win because Chris lied, right? So everybody bet that Phoenix was going to win because that was the tip that Chris gave that was his fake tip. Well, then... He says, hey, I shouldn't have done that. You know, I I lied. So then they all pull their bets. And then guess what? Phoenix does upset the Lakers. And in 1985, that's a huge upset, right? So everyone's like, the whole neighborhood is not only mad at Chris in the first place because he gave a bad pick, but then they're doubly mad because it actually came true and they all would have won a ton of money, but they pulled their bets. So... At the last minute, the mom is all excited. They're all all excited because they think they won. And then Jack Hay comes in and said, no, Doc called around and said to pull our bets. So we pull our bets. And then <laughs> and that's when the mom turns around and is like, see, this is why I can't, this is why I hate gambling. Because even when you think you win, you lose. You can never win. Yeah. And so this one, you know, like. Like oftentimes when we end with a newer episode, that tends to be the outlier because it's just sort of a whole different vibe with this. In this case, you know, the title of the episode is Everybody Hates Gambling, right? So it is, it does very much include a run-in with the mafia, but... This is not going to be about like, don't think that just because your neighbor is Italian, he's really a mob kingpin or something. This is going to be more about like, listen to your mom when she says not to get mixed up with this stuff and sort of like having that run in, but kind of learning the lesson more about gambling than anything else. And Chris definitely has the reaction that our characters in the other shows have when this guy kind of stops him on the side of the road on his walk home from school and is like, hey, you better not make it so that Doc wins this week. Like, Doc needs to lose. You make that happen. Chris is scared, and he has that sort of like, oh, God, it's the mafia, and he's thinking about all the movies, and he, as a kid, kind of has that reference right away, and so we're sort of just led to believe that it's a little bit naive and only little kids get freaked out like that, especially little kids who live in the hood, right? And I so I think this is kind of a nice little move in that direction of like what we talked about at the very beginning of like, is this even really 
like, should we even be talking about this as like the scary fake mobsters anymore? Like, can't we move in a different direction and attack the sort of stereotype that we're not even approaching that exists around kind of modern day gangland violence as opposed to Al Capone era gangland violence? So I think that was kind of an interesting move in that direction that that this took. The other thing that I wanted to say about Everybody Hates Chris, again, hadn't watched it, but it is definitely one of those early kind of like mid 2000s, uh, the aughts time shows where they have like the quick cutaways and like the thing, ha- like the imagined yes. thing happening in their head. And like, you know, the story about the grandfather being a bad gambler. And like, it was just like the same little scene over and over again, where he's like, I got the money. And then somebody comes and takes the money away. And it's like super close up of his face. And he's holding money and somebody takes it out of his hand. And then the next one, and it's like four different quick little vignettes where that happens. And it had that same sort of feel that yeah. like Scrubs does and 30 Rock does. Yeah, definitely. We loved our little cutaway scenes in those days. We loved our voiceover introductions. Yeah, this one was good. I feel like, I don't know, looking back on these, it's funny. I guess Head of the Class is the only one where the mafia element is completely imagined. Right. Right. In all the other ones, there actually is some sense of danger or the potential of danger of like the mob is is real and like you do have to deal with them once in a while which is funny because that's not what i would have guessed you know this trope has quite a few iterations you know our list was was pretty hardy for this one there's an office episode for example where this sort of pushy italian salesman uh you know gets gets michael convinced that he's he's a, a mob guy and that of course turns out to be false i think a lot of the times it does end up being you know uh being sort of a, a hoax or just a, a stereotype that that ends up not bearing out but in this case no they really are mafia guys a lot of the time yeah i wonder if this just has to do with the timing like the timing of it all right i think a lot of the ones that are from the 80s are gonna be like oh yeah look it's a real gangster kind of thing and it's funny because everybody hates chris is set in the 80s, right? This is supposed to be 1985. And so this is, you know, would have been in the time frame where Chris would have been exposed to everybody always worried about some sort of getting mixed up with the mob in some way. Yeah. So I don't know. I have to say, like, these were all pretty fun. But, you know, like the head of the class one, this is not a good example of head of the class for exactly the reason that... That show is not meant to deal in outlandish stuff like this. That is at its best when it's straight up coming of age. You know, I want to lose my virginity. I want to go to the dance. What should I do? That's where that show lives. And I think to an extent, the same is true of these other ones. You know, the silliness of this trope is, you know, inherently it makes all of these like sort of not the best 
versions of, of each of these shows. Sure, but I don't know like what else you do with a Bosom Buddies type show. They It always has to be like, oh, we got mixed up in this thing and we didn't mean to. I that's mean, that's, that's the only thing that show can do. And if it is so, you know, some like it hot, how great is it that this was the episode that we watched? The only thing that was missing was them doing the cross-dressing, like doing the dressing up like women. So I don't know. I think I, definitely not at its best for sure, because I'm sure there were much better and funnier episodes of Bosom Buddies. But, you know, you got to appreciate it for what it is. And it was it's very of its time. I mean, it's like smack dab in the middle of all of that. Um, I think my favorites would be Alf and Everybody Hates Chris, 100 percent. Alf is ridiculous already. So this storyline I've never seen an ALF storyline that wasn't ridiculous. Like, that's all they have. So to me, it was like, okay, this is just another episode of ALF. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was totally fine, right down the middle. The only thing I would say about this is that we didn't get enough ALF in this episode. There was less ALF than there was in a lot of other episodes. And we did less, like, farcical things with trying to hide ALF from the other people. So that's that's why ALF wasn't as good as it could have been, because it was more about this other story than it was about ALF. And so, to me, that leaves Everybody Hates Chris as being the best of the bunch. Yeah, it wins by default. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Everybody Hates Chris definitely had the mark of quality of, like, a newer good show, sure. you know. But it also just wasn't, like... I don't know, it just didn't connect with me in that way of like, oh, that one character is really funny or something, you know, like it still was just kind of like, all right, like, good job, you know? Yeah, and it definitely is an ensemble in the way of like, everybody is getting a, a bit of screen time, like every single person is interacting with Chris and having these moments. And so I think that also, like, uh, since both of us are kind of brand new into coming to that show... If you don't care about any of those characters yet, then there wasn't enough time for you to develop it yeah. in this kind of a show, like in this kind of an episode. But it doesn't matter. Like to me, the just the setup of that show, as good as the mom is in that show and as little used as Terry Crews is when we know he's good. So that to me would be the one to go back and watch, not just this episode, but like I want to go back and watch older episodes and do a deep dive, see if we can find some other tropes in it. Yeah, yeah. And the mom is definitely like she kind of makes it all worthwhile at the end. Graduate of LaGuardia High School, got cast in Little Shop of Horrors while in high school. She was 16 years old when they did that. Nice. And yeah, Bosom Buddies definitely gets the sort of time capsule award of just getting to see young Tom Hanks doing his silly sort of like, oh, run the camera and let me goof around for a couple minutes kind of a thing. And yeah, I think Alf ultimately takes it for me just because of the Willy antics. Just seeing yeah. him upside down in the net going, <laughs> Trevor, don't ask me about this. I'll explain it later. So like, we need to get um, Tashina Arnold and Max Wright in something together and just have them like have yeah, fun with their like I good acting. I think he might be dead. Oh, that's a um, bummer. <laughs> but uh, we'll see what we can do. All right. So <laughs> much the grave. for run-ins with the Mafia. What are we talking about next week? Next week, we are stepping out on our spouses. We're tempted by sexy co-workers. Growing Pains, Season 1, 
Episode 3, Jealousy, Rock, Season 1, Episode 20, A Piece of the Rock, The Simpsons, Season 5, Episode 9, The Last Temptation of Homer, and Till Death, Season 1, Episode 14, The Colleague. Yep, that's next week, and until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. Studio dog.